Welcome to the Citizens Youth Sermon Podcast. We are a ministry of Northwest Gospel Church and a community of students who are learning to live for Jesus. We meet every Wednesday at 7 p.m. To find out more, visit nwgospel.com slash citizens. How are you guys? Woo! Good to see you. Welcome. Come on. Hey, it's Wednesday night. It's the best night of the week. Let's go. I have a surprise. It's a small surprise, but I think you will appreciate it. It is the last Connect group of the season, which is very sad. I know. It's a mixed reviews on that one. That's fine. You guys are going to get a snack at small group tonight, and it is going to be tater tots. You're going to get a massive thing of tater tots to bring back to your group. I just wanted to tell you right now, I don't know why, I was just like, I feel like we could use a jolt of energy right now. And the answer is tater tots. You get tater tots tonight for your connect group. Hope you love it. All right, open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, we are going through verses 19 through 39. And um, man, I'm super thankful for um, all the people who have helped preach in this series, um, we're going to keep going over the next few weeks. Next week's uh, senior night where we're going to hear from all of our seniors. Let's go. It's going to be great grad night. Um, they're going to do a phenomenal job. And then we just have a few more weeks in the book of Hebrews. We're going to be done it before camp. And then uh, we're going to have a new series after camp, which is going to be great. Um, but I'm really thankful for everyone who's helped preach. Max, Will, Courtney, they've all done amazing jobs. They've all helped um, go into... Uh, this season with uh, conviction, and they've all done a really good job. So super thankful for them. And we are in chapter 10. And chapter 10 speaks to uh, this word confidence uh, more than once this, used, uh, this word is used. Uh, confidence. And I've noticed that there are certain people who just seem to be naturally confident. No matter what situation they find themselves in, no matter what task they seem to be uh, involved in, no matter what job's been thrown at them, they just kind of have this natural, like, go-get-it mentality, and it, 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 they're just so confident as they run through these things. Now, I've noticed there's kind of two different types of people, more or less. Sometimes we can be both, depending on the situation. There are people who are not very confident, but they should be. And then there seems to be sometimes people who are very confident, but they should not be very confident. Those people are kind of the worst sometimes. But more often than not, I'm the second person. So let's, let's, let's do an illustration here. People who are uh, not confident, but they should be. Um, I've worked with so many youth leaders, um, hundreds now over the last few years of youth leaders, um, who I've seen so many of them thrive over the years and they just do a phenomenal job. But the like first or second or third time going into small group or into a Wednesday night, they're just like, I, I can't do it. I'm too scared. Well, I, I don't know how to talk to a seventh grader. I don't know how to go to camp. What do you mean I ride this bus and like I'm here all weekend, right? And there's just this like natural hesitation, but they like love the Lord. They're fun. They're great at teaching. And I'm just like, you have all the reason in the world right now to be super confident. You should just go in there, talk to those kids, give them the gospel. It's going to be great. And now there are some people, we love them to death. 
And they seem to be very confident. And in the back, you're like, they got a few things to work on. Now, I've been this more times than I can count. A good example of this is, so I like, I for many, many years had never, actually for like my first 20 years of life, had never picked up a golf club. Like ever. I know. Yeah, I've just never played golf. I mean, I tried maybe like when I was really, really little, but I had no understanding of how to swing a golf club. And I think around uh, like 20, 21 years old, my friends invited me to Top Golf, and I had never heard of Top Golf. If you don't know what it is, it's this like five-story complex where you can hit golf balls into holes. It's very cool. Um, and I went into this thing, and I'm like, you know what? How hard can it be? How hard can it be to swing a golf club? I mean, come on. I don't need to look up any videos. I don't need to, like, ask any, like, tips or pointers. I'm just going to go in, and I'm going to swing at the golf ball, and I'm going to see how far it goes. It's going to be great, right? And to this day, I kid you not, to this day, people still text me and ask me if I'm allowed to go back to Top Golf because not once, but twice, I nearly launched the club backwards into the surrounding area. I caught it both times, right? It kind of slid across the ground. And to this day, whenever I post, like I'm at Top Golf, people will DM me and they will never let it down. So I walked in extremely confident and I shouldn't have been. I shouldn't have been at all. This can happen to many of us, right? You try a new task, you're like, I'm just gonna give it my all and I am going to fail, but it doesn't matter because confidence is key. Um, so there's kind of these two types of people in life. Um, the reality is all of us can be one or both of these people. Um, sometimes we have every reason to be confident, but we're not. Sometimes we should maybe humble ourselves a little bit, and we shouldn't think of ourselves as confident. Um, if I were to tell you to walk on stage right now and to give a five-minute speech about anything, I think 99% of us in the room would be really, really scared. Even if you've been on stage before for choir or play or something like that, I think there's a long list of things that if we were tasked to do them, we wouldn't be confident whatsoever. And tonight we're going to see in the first few verses, um, there is this incredibly difficult, impossible task that God tells us that we should do this with complete confidence. And that is to approach God himself in the holiest of holies. Now, that's a pretty high bar. If you're like going to range like from trying to swing a golf club to the first time to public speaking to like standing before a holy God, I would be like, yeah, that last one sounds like way scarier than the rest. But what we're going to see tonight is that there should be nothing but confidence in all of our hearts when we're following after Christ. There should be nothing but complete and total confidence in Christ because of his sacrifice. And the question we have to ask ourselves is where does our confidence come from? Where does our confidence before God come from? How can we stand comfortably and proudly and boldly before a holy God when we are so sinful? Well, the text is going to tell us tonight. So look at verse 19, and uh, this is God's word. It says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and the living way, that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. 
with our hearts sprinkled clean from evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to our confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another for love and good works, not neglecting, neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. God, we love you. I pray that you be with us as we're looking through your word. You give us guidance and direction um, that we wouldn't be distracted, but we would be locked in on everything you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so the first few verses, surprise, surprise, we're in the book of Hebrew, allude again to the Old Testament. Once again, the book and the author of Hebrews is connecting the old sacrificial system, temple worship, and the Levitical priests to the, uh, uh, the completed works of Jesus Christ. And he shows that the works of Jesus are far greater than all these things that we have seen before us. It says this, this astounding verse. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Now, we've heard this a few different times in a few different ways, but this is the first time that Jesus is directly compared to the curtain itself. Now, we've talked about it the last few weeks. If you haven't been here, um, God specifically instructed um, the Israelites on how they're to atone for their sins, how they are to um, make an atonement for uh, their sins uh, through sacrifice, how they're supposed to worship God, where God would physically dwell with his people in a temple. And the holiest of holies was the place where God dwelled. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was, and it's where the very Spirit of God for thousands of years was. That's just where he was chilling. It's where he was hanging out. And this astounding claim is made, we have this confidence. It's something we already present to go into the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new way. Jesus makes a new way for us to connect with God. Jesus makes a new way to draw near in grace together. That's the first point tonight, to draw near in grace together. There's a call here. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. How? Why? How is it possible? Only through grace. Where does our confidence come from? Where does our confidence come from? What are you the most confident in? We just kind of give this a little. What are you the most confident in? Like you don't even have to think about it. You're so good at it. Is it a sport? Is it a hobby? Is it... Um, what is it? What are you the most confident? I am so confident that this person is my best friend. We are going to do everything together. I am so confident that I'm just going to crush this other guy at spike ball because I'm so much better than him. Um, but where does our confidence come from when it relates to a holy God? Um, only God himself could give us such confidence. Only God himself could give us and make a way for us to have such confidence, to enter into the holy places. That is through the curtain. I love this. This is a reference to the curtain that was, of course, torn in two. 
and Jesus' flesh was, of course, pierced for us. So we see this direct correlation between um, Jesus making the entry into the holiest of holies through his pierced and torn body. Um, and through that sacrifice, you and I have new life. But what makes us not so confident before God? What makes you and me kind of shrink a little bit when we think of God? What makes you and me kind of hesitant or anxious or fearful when we think about a holy God? The answer is sin. We think of all the things that we've done wrong. We think of the growing list of things that have dishonored God. We think about all the bad words and the bad heart we had when we said those words. We think of all the lies that we thought, hey, this isn't a super big deal. Uh, we think of all the lustful thoughts that have kind of spiraled out of control in our years. And we kind of take these things and we think there's no way that I can possess these and still have confidence before God. There's no way that I can still have these sins and at all feel welcomed in the presence of God. There's no way I can even pray about these things. I got to clean my act up first. So where does our confidence come from? Look at verse 23 again. It says, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. You see, sin is the thing that separates us from God, but Christ is the one who has forgiven us of our sins, and our confidence isn't in our ability to not sin. Our confidence is in the one who has forgiven us from our sins. If you have your confidence solely in your ability to not sin, you're going to be really frustrated as a Christian. If your sole confidence before God is, here's the laundry list of things that I have done good, and here's the things I haven't done today, you're going to constantly be upset. Why? Because our confidence can't be in that. Our confession isn't that we're good people. Our confession isn't that we tried hard enough. Our confession isn't I've kind of kept this Bible reading plan going. Our confession is in the one who made us the promise in the first place. Let us hold fast to our confession or our faith. All right, this word confession was what to confess Christ, to be a Christian, was to have and is to have a confession. Let us hold fast to that faith of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The reason we can be confident before a holy God is because God made the promise to us first, and he is the one who is faithful. Your ability or lack of ability to sin isn't the thing that gets you a relationship with God. It never was, and it will never be the thing that keeps you in favor with God. It will always be the curtain that was torn in two, or what the author is saying here, Jesus himself, whose flesh was pierced for us, whose blood was spilled. The new way, the living way, and the high priest of the new house of God, the heavenly temple that we talked about a few weeks ago. So because this is true, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Our confidence is in the one who was first faithful to you and me. And if you're trying to make the Christian walk just a life of here's the things I can't do or God will be mad, 
you're going to constantly be hearing the voice of the accuser, and you're going to constantly be living in this downward spiral of, I have to shape up. And the answer is to have and to hold fast to the confession of our hope, for he who promised is faithful. Do you believe that Jesus is the way and the living way? If that's the thing that gets your relationship with God, it's the thing that keeps you in a relationship with God. That's why we can be confident. Our confidence isn't in ourselves. It's not in another Christian. It's not in a pastor or a program or a Bible reading plan. Our confidence must solely be in Jesus because he has been faithful to us before we can even say the word faithful with our mouths because we were babies, right? The Lord is faithful. And the call of a Christian is to draw near to God in grace together. So the opening kind of exhortation here, as we understand that our confidence comes from Christ, the opening exhortation is to approach this holy place, to enter into the holy place of God. And we're supposed to do it together. Uh, After verse 23, we see verses 24 and 25, which are like some of the best verses about the church, uh, some of the best verses about why we do stuff like this. I'm just going to read it for you. It says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The author in the original context, and we're going to see more about this as we go on, is begging his listeners to hold close to their confession, to not waver, to not let the exterior pressures of the world get to them. And so many Christians at this time were wondering, they're kind of deciding here, am I really going to stick with this Jesus thing? This has cost me a lot. This has cost me relationships. This has cost me my home. This has cost me my well-being. This has cost me so much. And I grew up in this Jewish faith, and that seemed good enough for me for all these years. And so these Christians are deciding. They're kind of like teetering between these two worlds. And the author is so strict and so clear in these things. He says, boldly approach God. And also, you're going to have to do it together. you got to stick with it. Don't neglect this meeting. Now, there were probably hundreds and hundreds of people who were gathering together in the name of Jesus. So they would have definitely stood out a little bit. They definitely would have been making a scene, and it definitely would have put a target on their back in their current context. And so there is this temptation to say, well, I love Jesus, and I'm just going to, like, do my Jesus thing over here in my house. And the author says, don't do that. Don't neglect meeting together. Don't do it. Don't, Don't give in to the exterior temptation to be quiet. Don't give in to what the world is saying. Meet together and not only do that, stir one another up for love and good works. Stir one another up together for love and good works. Christianity is not a solo sport. Christianity, and the reason why we put on programs like this in youth ministries, is because we believe confidently that Christians thrive in community, and it is actually a biblical command to do this, to meet together constantly. And COVID kind of had people questioning that the past few years, when we have unlimited access to, honestly, really good Christian content all over the internet. 
We've got great preachers from all across the world that we could watch. We've got great Bible softwares that we can use. It's pretty awesome being a Christian in the 21st century. You've got a lot of tools at your disposal, but that doesn't mean we don't do this. That doesn't mean we don't have relationship with other Christians and we figure out how to encourage them and spur them on to love and good works. It doesn't mean you can't sit down with, the, it doesn't mean you uh, avoid um, relationship with a small group leader. It doesn't mean you can uh, avoid relationship with a church or a community. It is a command for all of us to be connected and a part of a living organism that's the church. Do not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Uh, the church is important. Don't reject this community. Uh, the church is more important than your traveling team. The church is more important than your friends. The church is more important than your, the future college you're trying to get into. Uh, the church is more important than your grade point average. Uh, the church is more important than baseball, soccer, football, whatever it is. I'm not just saying this to try and sell like this whole church thing because I work at the church. I'm saying it because it is essential to every New Testament believer to read these verses and follow their guidance. We have to prioritize this time. And I don't want to come from like the top ropes and say like everything you're doing is bad. I just want you to consider you have a little bit more freedom than you realize. Um, you get to decide with your time what you do. Now, middle schoolers, admittedly, your parents kind of control everything about your life, and they send you here, and I love that. Super thankful for them. Um, I'm talking more to sophomores, juniors, seniors. There's this thing that happens when we hit these years, and I was, I was there, and admittedly, I didn't always succeed at this. But we have this decision before us now. I've got, like, my girlfriend, and I've got, like, this job. I want to make money because I want to buy parts for my car. And, like, Wednesday nights at 7, it's, like, right in the middle of the week and 7 o'clock. I don't know if I can make it after. Church is more important. Church is more important. Okay, Noah, but, like, what about just, like, my relationship with Jesus? Shouldn't my relationship with Jesus be more important? Yes, I completely agree. But Jesus says that the church is his bride, the thing that he loves the most. So checkmate, loser. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you can't separate the church from Christ. It's the way he makes his presence known. It's the way he's moving through the Spirit. It's the way that he is changing the world. Christianity is not a solo sport. It's not a Bible reading plan. It's not a pastor I follow on TikTok. It is a community. And that is why we value church so much. That is why we value going so much, is these verses right here. Do not neglect to meet together. Now, this doesn't mean you have to be the, at the church every single day, right? I understand there's healthy boundaries to have with the church. If you're like, I, I got to be there on Monday, Tuesday. Like some churches have programs every single night of the week, and there's this unhealthy pressure to be like, come, serve it all of it. Don't neglect it. But in your time, in your conviction, as the Lord convicts you, is church a priority? Is the relationships with the people around you a priority? Because it has to be. And are you, in these relationships, spurring one another on for love and good works? Is somebody in this room more loving because of you? Is somebody in this room more excited to serve Jesus because of you? Is somebody in this church building 
more passionate about the Word of God because of you. It's great coming, but we're not just consuming in a room. We're doing stuff together. And that's why we love connect groups. I'm sad they're ending tonight. But that's why we strive so hard for this community. All right, let's continue here. It says this in verse 26. Uh, we're going to read verses 26 through 31. And we're going to talk about it. another passage in Scripture uh, that is heavy. It's weighty. Um, there's a lot of things to unpack here. And uh, the author takes a turn here. He says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer, uh, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So a lot of times this happens in Hebrews. There is an encouragement, there is a warning, and there's an exhortation, kind of all mixed together. Um, We start off with kind of this theological idea, then there's this strong warning, and then we're going to end on the encouragement. Um, This passage shows us that we don't reject his sacrifice. So first the author says, draw near to God and grace together. And then the author says, don't reject his sacrifice. And this is a stern warning to all of those who think that Jesus isn't the only way for salvation. There, of course, are eternal rewards for those who approach God through grace. But there will be judgment for those who reject God's perfect plan and his perfect servant. Now, it's important to know in difficult passages like this, we got to say, okay, well, who's it talking? Who, who is the author, the original author, talking to? What's the original context? And what is even happening in passages like this? Now, it's important to know um, he is talking to a congregation. It says this, for if we go on sinning deliberately. So um, he is including the congregation in this, in this stern warning. Now, if we continue to sin deliberately... But it's also important to know that many people in this congregation may not have known Christ and may not have truly believed in Christ. It says this, For if we go on sinning deliberately and after receiving the knowledge of truth, there is no longer, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. And then verse 29, it says this, How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant, and who has outraged the Spirit of grace. So there's three things that this person is doing. They're um, trampling under their feet God, the Son of God. They've profaned the blood of the covenant, and they've outraged the Spirit of grace. These are three things that are very intense, but it is very clear that this is addressing someone who is an unrepentant person, 
someone who hasn't truly followed after Jesus. Um, we all sin. We all struggle with sin. We all have sins that we bring into our relationship with Christ that we're forgiven of. Um, but this is clearly somebody who's unrepentant. It's not somebody who's trying to grow in fruitfulness with God or in a relationship with God. This isn't a picture of somebody who is like, I, I picture it like this. They're trying so hard to hold on to their faith and they just like kind of trip and they mess up. And, and then all of a sudden their faith is on the ground. It's like, oh no, I've accidentally stepped on Jesus and like profaned and blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Um, it's not like that at all. Uh, your faith isn't like a big trip to Safeway where you're like trying to carry everything in and you're like, there go my oranges and my salvation. Oh no, like what do I do? Um, I don't quite see it like that. And we have to address the whole council of scripture in verses like this. We've actually talked about this before. Um, when we receive the spirit of grace, those uh, gifts that we received are irrevocable. Even last week, the author made a very clear point to say, Jesus died for our sins once and for all. So what is happening here? Um, I believe that he's addressing the unbelievers in the audience. And what he's doing is very similar to what he did or they did in uh, chapter 4 or chapter 5. I can't remember which one. But he's building this hypothetical situation saying, okay, if somebody truly followed after Jesus, theoretically, and then decided to leave Jesus, like, it's not possible. There's therefore no grace for this person because they've blasphemed the very and the only thing that can save them. And I completely agree with that, and all of us should, because that's biblical, because Jesus is the only way. Now, when we truly repent and are truly regenerate, I don't believe it's possible for us to therefore trample underfoot the Son of God or reject the Holy Spirit or profane the blood of the covenant. That word profane there, uh, this is used in the Old Testament as somebody who would... Um, uh, they, they just wouldn't have any regard for anything that was holy. It would mean to profane something, would mean to have no care or to no reverence whatsoever of what it actually meant. Um, and to profane anything that God says was holy means that that person would die. So there's holy objects all in the temple. And if someone were to profane them by touching them with their human hands, they would die. And this person, again, who is a big fan of the Old Testament, is saying the person who rejects Jesus has no desire whatsoever. They don't care at all about the blood of the covenant, which of course means that this person cannot be saved. I don't believe it is talking about somebody who is already followed after Christ. Now, off of that soapbox, and we can throw our theological hat to the side for now, um, there should be fruit in your life as a Christian. It says here in verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, some people's faith only goes head deep. You're like, what do you mean by that? I mean, some people's faith is purely logical. Some people's faith is purely knowledge. There's some people who could ace a Bible test more than any of us in this room, but not have a relationship with Jesus. What's the difference? The fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of our good works, of love and righteousness and good works. And if somebody is sinning deliberately, meaning they have no conscience of the Holy Spirit, they have no understanding of what they're supposed to be doing, but they know about Jesus, well, then this person has rejected Jesus. And verses like this are sobering. 
Of course, we see here in verse 30, um, the author is quoting Deuteronomy 32. And the Old Testament actually makes very clear distinction between those who are rebelling against God and those who maybe even sin unknowingly or accidentally. The Old Testament does this in the book of Deuteronomy as well. And so it's safe to assume that there are two distinct types of people here. But we do have to ask ourselves, is my faith in God genuine? Does my life have fruit? Is my faith only logical or academic? Or is my faith real? Is my faith genuine? Am I following God with everything that I have? Because the person who rejects Christ cannot be saved. Uh, sinning deliberately is anti-Christian. And to be Christian is to grow in righteousness, not to be perfect, but we should constantly be growing. The author makes his uh, greater argument again here. It says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has done these things? The author is saying that to reject the law of Moses, to reject the old covenant would be like really bad and you would be executed for it. But to reject the Son of God is actually much worse. And so my call for you today is to not reject the Son of God. He's the only way to salvation. Many of us love reading Scripture and hearing about the wonderful, like the grace and the love of God, and I believe all that is true. But it's important to have verses like this in mind when people say, oh, well, like there's no such thing as hell. Oh, like God's judgment, all, like it's all on Jesus, and you just got to really try and you can love Jesus. It's not so. The same God of the Old Testament from Deuteronomy 32 is the same God of Hebrews 10, and it's the same God today. He requires a righteous sacrifice in the place of sin, and those who reject that sacrifice reject God himself. But the good news is if you can hear my voice, you can turn right now and accept his grace, and you will no longer be cast out. But we can't reject his sacrifice. So we endure in our faith together. First, we draw near in grace to the very throne room of God, to the holies of holies together. We don't reject his sacrifice, and we endure till the end. Look at these final verses. It says this in 32 through 39. It says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, meaning after you understood, after you received the power of the Holy Spirit, think after these days you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on the one in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and he will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. Look at that last verse. But those who have faith and preserve their souls. That is the key to this entire 20 verses that we have just read. 
A genuine faith is an enduring faith. Enduring faith is a real faith. That's the thing that we want to close with. Enduring faith is a real faith. A genuine relationship with God will endure and it will preserve your very life. A genuine faith with God will withstand all storms, withstand all trials, all tribulations, and will preserve you to the very end. Not because we have confidence in who? Ourselves. But because the one who promised these things is faithful. This is the final encouragement to these listeners. He's drawing out the persecution that they've already faced in the past. And he's basically saying, hey, you guys have seen a lot worse already. Why don't you just keep going? For you had compassion on those who were imprisoned. You had compassion on the people. And look at this. You were joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. These people were willing to have their most prized possessions. To own property was to be very wealthy. So some of these people were very wealthy. To, and they were joyfully like, here, take it. Why? Why is somebody so willing to give up earthly possessions? Why is somebody so willing to say, I don't care about my life, my positions, or my reputation? Why? Because you knew that yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. There is a promise in this life. The promise isn't that you're going to be perfect. The promise is not that you are going to keep all of the things that you've acquired in this life. The promise is not that everything is going to be easy. The promise is this, that God will be with you. He will be with you to the very end. And at the end of all things, you will be with him forever. Those are the promises. And we have to understand this as Christians. There is nothing better than this promise. So hold on. Hold on. Don't swerve to the left or to the right. Keep with the faith. Keep with the faith. Hold on. Do not throw away your confidence, which is a great reward. You need endurance. All of us need endurance. You need to know as a 14, 15, 16-year-old that you're going to need some endurance if you're going to run the race of a Christian life. Prayerfully, you live a very long time You've got many, many, many years of hardship and trial and difficulty ahead of you, but you need endurance, and the one who promised is faithful. For when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. What has God promised? He's promised us a new heavens and a new earth. Jesus says, my Father's house has many rooms, and I'm going to prepare one of them for you. We have a place in God's mansion. We have a place in God's perfect world one day if we do the will of God and hold fast to our confession with is Christ. We have to endure till the end. These Christians kicked out of their homes, publicly ridiculed. Some of them killed. Some of them may know someone who is killed. Are you rejecting God for much less? What, what are you willing to be persecuted for? What are you willing to endure in this life? Because I bet it's not as bad as what they have. I think some of us aren't even willing to have an awkward conversation for our faith. I think many of us in this room aren't willing to have to move lunch tables because we're sticking up for the principles of our faith. I think many of us would choose our friends over our God every single day, if you're honest with yourselves. I think many of us would choose our own comfort and probably our house. 
Why do these people joyfully give everything away? Because they have a better possession and an abiding one. Don't turn when things are hard. Don't compromise on truth. Don't compromise on your faith. Don't fear what the spirit of the age or what this world will throw at you because they will throw things at you. There will be humiliation. There will be, oh, wait, you're a Christian? Wait, does that mean you don't support this community? There will be moments of, hey, you're a Christian, so, like, you won't come to this wedding? Wait, you're a Christian, so you won't go do this at this party with me? you got to say and you've got to be confident. There's a greater reward than the temporary pleasures of this earth. There's a better reward one day waiting for you. There is a better hope and a better promise, and we have to endure till the end. An enduring faith is a real faith. And the confidence that we have in all of this is not in ourselves. God knows it's not in any of us, but it is in the one who has been faithful to us. Are you willing to stand up for your faith when things get rocky? Are you willing to accept that Jesus is the only way? And are you willing to, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace together in community? Let's pray together. God, I pray that you um, would move in your spirit, um, that we would recognize that the things of this earth are temporary, that the problems we face are temporary. That's something to rejoice. And God, I pray that we would do what these first opening verses uh, command us to. I pray that we would, with confidence, enter into the holy place or into the very presence of who you are because of your sacrifice. And I pray that we would do that together. In the listening of your word, in the sharing of the spirit as we sing, I pray that this would be a place where we would boldly draw near every single week, that we wouldn't hide who we're talking about or why, but we would know that it's your sacrifice, that you, the curtain was torn, your very body bruised and pierced for our own transgressions. We love you, Lord. Pray for the person in the room right now who um, is not a believer and they're wrestling with these things. I pray that your spirit would graciously do what it does and it would give them uh, the thoughts and the words to speak and that their heart and hearts would be softened. I pray for all of us in the room that uh, are Christians, we would know that you're the one who made these promises to us first. Uh, you're the one who has been faithful and we would have all the confidence and the full assurance of faith. Help us to have faith when it's hard. Help us to have faith when we don't know what you're doing. We love you, Lord. Help us to sing in this moment boldness and courage because of what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.